the Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you you like access to bonus episode, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the curiosity shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon only Facebook group. Which is super fun. It's true. It's where you want to be. Definitely. Like, no drama. Just creepy, crafty weirdos sharing creepy, crafty weirdo fun. Yes, you can come hide there when your family becomes too much. Yes. Yes, you can look at the things that we find at 3 o'clock in the morning when we can't sleep. Or bonus photos of our cats. Or random cemeteries that I pass. (laughs) Great Aunt Frances with um, lights in her chest cavity. You know. Yes, yes, yes. And if you don't know what that is and you are a new listener, I'm sorry and you're welcome. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Uh, hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 23, from Mary Sachs to Coco Sucks. She does, it turns out. Uh, I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast, and I go by she and her. And I'm Natalie from Uberdark Designs, an official true crime creative. My pronouns are she, her. Yay! Yay! Let me tell you what I've been doing this week. Yay! I've decided to dive headfirst into genealogy research. Nice. Yeah. And I found out, in a complete surprise to me, that multiple branches of my family, like, as in grandparent, great-grandparent, great-great-grandparent direct lines, are colonial residents and like way colonial like late 1600s (laughs) Um, at least I have not actually there are two branches that I have not found the where they come over part yet Um, and one of them is was a revolutionary war captain and it he is my fifth great-grandfather Wow. Yeah, and so I've been emailing today with the Daughters of the American Revolution about getting that particular part 
of my genealogy confirmed and joining the DAR. That's fun. Yeah, I'm pretty pleased because I, it's one of those things where I have not allowed myself to dive into genealogy because I knew it would take over my life. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of a, a little reward for having finished my latest book. So I'm pretty excited. Yay. Oh, I have on my list. Um, we've, we've got some genealogy, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we have some very, like one side of my family is just tragedy after tragedy. Um, I would have made such a wonderful Victorian chick because I'd have been like, just in constant mourning. (laughs) I don't understand how people weren't in constant mourning. Right. Given all of the rules based on how close you were to God knows who. I I feel like it would be very difficult to not be in mourning at all times. And I, 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 I'm, Hoping that you would have got like a cheat sheet or a guidebook because I would have inevitably have not done it correctly. (laughs) I think maybe your lady's maid had to know because that was the person dressing you. Oh, my God. I would not have done well with a lady's maid. I don't I don't know. I would have just gotten up to hijinks with a lady's maid. (laughs) Built in partner in crime. Yep. Matter of fact, I think that I would like a lady's maid, not because I want anything done, but because there would be a built-in person who would just go along on my <laughs> shenanigans. Yes. And, I mean, I am, of course, assuming that this is a person who I like and yes. would want to go along on my shenanigans. So, well, that's super yeah. fun. I have I have hashing out some genealogy. Not it's it's not even it's not even hashing out genealogy. It's hashing out the crimes involved in my genealogy, which is <sighs> yeah. The only crimes that I have found thus far uh, involve adultery. <laughs> oh yeah, that's I mean yeah, which is technically a crime. It is. It is. Yep. And my great-grandfather used to play minor league baseball with some of Al Capone's boys. Oh, that's fun. In Chicago. Yeah. So, that's a thing. That is a thing. Yep. Uh, Weird fact, when I was little, I went through a phase where I wanted to be a mobster wife when I grew up. But quickly (laughs) realized that I was far too (laughs) lippy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would either really work or really not work. Um, And I don't even know what sparked it, but I was like, and to this day, one of the only, like, I have never seen any of the real housewives of blah, 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 but I have watched the mob wives. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even know that existed. And now we know what I'm doing later. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, Yeah. It was amazing. R.I.P. Big Angie. Um. (laughs) I know a uh, a mob prince, I think is maybe what they are called. A kid of 
a family head. But they are not publicly the kid of a family head. So that makes um, sense. Yes. They are carefully protected as they are not in the life. So, uh, but you know, in a good way, like yeah. the family is taking care of them and making sure that they don't get involved or they don't have to be involved in anything, which is cool. That's very cool. Yeah. I mean, it, as cool as you can get when you're talking about some truly sketchy goings on. Right. Definitely. There's always, from my experience and knowledge, a strong moral code when it comes to family, though. Yeah, that seems so. right. Yeah, and I respect that. Yep. Do you know what else you gotta respect? All um, of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. And That is what I was gonna say. <laughs> and this part of the show is episode show entertainment segment (laughs) (laughs) this right here is where we would give a totally normal and not Mm -hmm. at all creepy welcome should you join us over there on the patreon yeah on the patreons yeah you should do that because you do you know why It's because you are the best. The best. And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you while looking up the final resting places of our ancestors. Absolutely. And I live in 20 degree weather right now. I'd totally be out there with you. And. Yeah, New York still isn't cold. So. Yeah, we're starting with your cold. And if you want in on this fun, not only do you get some really great surprises that we are now that deadlines and the holidays are just about to be over, we've got some surprises. You'll get a back, like a huge backlog of Patreon-only episodes, including next That's week. That's true. Where we talk from one runway to the next. Um, and we make a good gift. And if you do try us out and you're like, maybe not so much that's cool too like we don't hold it against you we we do hold it against that one reviewer who wrote the really weird and confusing review though right if you're listening human being that wrote that i just have one question and um could you just like drop email us and give us context yeah like i (laughs) I don't recall. I cuss a lot, but I don't think I've ever been accused of baby talk before. Yeah, me neither. It's a mystery. It is a mystery. It's a mystery. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that person probably listens anymore, but if they do, we don't want to fight with you. We're just confused. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> we are open. We are open to all kinds of input. If we fuck up a fact, we will gladly like correct ourselves. Like we are, we're human beings, man. We're fine with. Yep. If you don't like us, we get that. If you have issues with us, and you let us know, we try to work on things. We're not perfect, and we don't think that we're perfect. Like we roll with that. Ooh. Just confused. That's I can't all. even get on the right page. Literally. <laughs> Right. Right. 
so yeah yeah so come join us or answer our mysterious universe questions yes all of those things do you want to hear a story i totally want to hear a story okay I fell down this particular rabbit hole because my best friend went to a choir concert for a local gender-inclusive choir in New York and saw this woman who was wearing apparently the most amazing emerald green velvet cape that has ever existed in the history of the universe. I mean, you had me an emerald velvet cape. Yeah. Well, she suddenly became completely obsessed with the existence of that cape and went as far as to ask the woman to take a photo of the label. Okay. And, I mean, asked where... She found it, right. and the answer was an antique store. So, yeah. um, then later, the next day, my best friend came to my apartment and told me about this cape, and then it became both my goal and her goal to track down this particular cape, which we have not actually managed to do yet uh for reasons that i'm not entirely sure about um it seems like it could be a bespoke item but also that's not the kind of place where it came from so i don't know Hmm. it's a mystery maybe you can help solve it but i have tracked down the creator of said Cape of Wonder. Mm-hmm. And her name is Mary Sachs. So I always like finding a fascinating, beloved local personality. And I find them to be very confusing and also very delightful because, like, you know how certain people have really outsized impacts on the town they're from, but then nobody's ever heard of them anywhere else. We have a man that looks like Wolverine, and (laughs) he is called the Milverine, uh, and he is a beloved local Milwaukee figure that, but if you weren't from Milwaukee, you'd be like, the what? No. We have Speedo Guy um, from my... (laughs) Well, the general area that I grew up in. Um, So, shout out to anyone in and around South Haven, Michigan. (laughs) You know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so Mary Sachs seems to be that kind of personality. And I'm not sure why she isn't better known outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where she is extremely well-known. Because it's sort of unusual, at least 
for her time period for a big local personality to have been a woman, but this big local personality was a woman and an entrepreneur. And I'm just very... I don't understand why I don't know her name. Okay. Um, Mary Sachs was well-known in Harrisburg, and her store and her family and her philanthropy are still well-known there today. But as far as I can tell, she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Really? And, yeah. But a piece of vintage fashion with her label sewn in fetches a real pretty penny on the vintage fashion scene. Hmm. Which is also weird. That is weird. I mean, it's not weird that something rare would be worth money, but it is no, it's strange been... to me that nobody is wondering about who this person is. Or maybe they are, and I just don't know what I'm talking about. But she seems to be sort of an unsung hero of early to uh, mid-1900s fashion. Wow. Yeah, so that is her, super rare then. Yeah. So her name and philanthropic giving is attached to many actually known things. She was a founding contributor to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Yeshiva University in New York City, which is not an unknown right. thing. Um, she befriended Eleanor Roosevelt. She enabled the purchase of land for a Boy Scout camp that's very much still operating today. Um, she even has a road ceremonially named for her, and her name is on a bunch of things at Jewish community centers. And I... Now I want to hug her. Yeah, like, <laughs> she seems like a cool lady. And I, I kept looking for problematic tidbits that maybe were keeping her out of the public eye. But other than the general ingrained sexism of the time period, well, I mean, she I, doesn't. I would, I would think that it would not. Is it possible that it wasn't just the sexism, but also anti-Semitism too? Oh no, but I mean, on her part, oh, like oh, she yeah, yeah. waxes poetic about her only brother. Um, and how excited the family was to have him arrive in a sea of sisters. Like, just stuff like that. Um, but it absolutely is probably anti-Semitism, at least in part. But places like Yeshiva University, those are Jewish schools. Right. And, I mean... New York City has an awful lot of Jewish people here. Mm -hmm. So I feel like at least, and we're not that far away from Pennsylvania, we should 
know the name, but we don't. Especially fashion related. You'd think that it would have, you know, New York would have. Yeah. Hmm. Although it, well, I, I will get there. <laughs> um, though her iconic store has been long closed, the most recent photos of the area that I've seen still show an awning in place with her name emblazoned upon it. Aww. Like it, and it's maintained. That's some respect there. Yeah, and she obviously hasn't been forgotten. But it also doesn't seem like she's gotten the recognition she deserves. And given her success and larger impact on how people shop for ready-to-wear fashion, it surprises me that she isn't better known just based on that. Now, Mary was born in Lithuania on March 10th of 1888, and in 1892, when she was four years old, she came to the U.S. with her mother and siblings, joining her father, who had already moved to Pennsylvania a few years earlier in advance of the rest of the family. And for context, at the point where we pick up this story, I think it's important to keep in mind that Mary was an unmarried, immigrant, working-class Jewish woman opening a business in the midst of World War I in the shadow of the Spanish flu epidemic at a time when women couldn't yet vote. So... That's a lot going on. That is a lot going on, and that's a lot to be celebrated. I mean, that's that had been tough. I mean, she yeah. had to have faced a lot of hurdles for that. And she did, but she was really creative in getting around them. So in... Oh, sorry. On September 6th, 1918, Mary Sachs opened her first women's clothing store in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. One of the websites for a scholarship in her name said that she was fired from another dress shop for being honest with a customer and then decided to open her own, which, given the rest of her story, makes a lot of sense. Her first store was located at 210 North 3rd Street, and her budget was very small. She started with a $6,000 business line of credit. And in 1918, there were two stock rooms and six fitting rooms, and the shop was 20 feet by 106 feet. Okay. So she's starting pretty small. Now, the way she makes this initial foray into business work is kind of amazing. So, when she opened the store, there were, I think, 73 dressmakers and 10 women's clothing shops operating in the area. Oh, wow. And... That's a lot. Yeah. And from 
the biography that I read that had the most in-depth information about her, which is Mary Sachs' Merchant Princess by Barbara Train Blank. Um, they, that book said that because most of the businesses in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area at that time were run by Jewish immigrant families, that there was a lot of loyalty. Mm-hmm from the specifically working class Jewish public. And so it was really hard to jump into business because it was all about relationships at that time. And so because she was a woman Mm -hmm. and was unmarried and it was just her like she wasn't partnering with a man in any way um she often could not get clothing manufacturers in new york to sell to her wow because even in fashion at the time it was men who were the business people who would be negotiating that sort of thing. And she refused to work with the local businessmen. She wanted it to be hers. And so what she did is kind of brilliant. Because there wasn't a lot of stock in her store at the time, she set her store up as a very personal service sort of thing where each individual piece of clothing would be brought to you. And she built full ensembles, like foundation garments, up. And it was very personal hand-to-hand service. So people couldn't see that there wasn't much on the rack. They could only ah. see the personal service. And that is amazing. Yeah. That's and really that, smart. Exactly. And it would later be how Fifth Ave operated. I mean, that is absolutely, like, when I've been shopping for Emmy dresses and such, that is absolutely what still happens. You hang out someplace comfy and people bring you shit. And... That seems to have come from her. And in order to get the business or the um, clothing manufacturers who wouldn't sell to her to sell to her, upon her opening, she bought $100 worth of flowers, which was a whole lot in 1918. And she put names of congratulations that she wrote herself Mm -hmm. um, from the manufacturers, even the ones who would not sell to her. (laughs) So when people came into the store, they saw these bouquets of flowers with handwritten notes from all of these 
manufacturers who absolutely did not send flowers. Um, but according to the lore around this, one of the major women's clothing retailers in the area heard about it, went in and saw a clothing manufacturer that she bought from on that list and canceled all of her orders. And so that retailer or that um, clothing manufacturer then really needed to get rid of this inventory <laughs> and sold to Mary. I think and I yeah, <laughs> and apparently also at some point clothing merchants who were hearing this buzz about this new store mm -hmm. came in and found their names written on these cards that they definitely did not send <laughs> on flowers they definitely did not buy and were so embarrassed that they had not sent them <laughs> that they started doing business with her. So... That's amazing. Even if some of that is apocryphal, that's the oral history from the family. It kind of and fits, though. Like, I kind of love it. <laughs> I, I absolutely love it. And it seems to fit her MO. Like, it seems to... to track. Yeah. And so, at this point, when she opened the store, she was renting from a local newspaper magnate and who happened to cover largely the Jewish cultural happenings within mm -hmm. the area and decided to take a chance on her for reasons somewhat unclear to me. But, but he did. And uh, according to the biography, Mary was then able to purchase the property, which is not the property with the address. This gets a little complicated because there was so much expansion and mm. so much additional renting out on that block that was happening in rapid succession. But in 1920, she was able to purchase the uh, property at 208 North 3rd Street outright and then expanded into, uh, I guess, further into the 210 North 3rd Avenue with cooperation from that building's owner. That's and amazing. so, I mean, just being a female owner of anything let alone a building at that point you know that's so impressive. yeah it's so cool and the timeline in the biography is a bit muddled and because there is relatively little information outside of local historical societies mm. and local museum exhibitions it's sort of hard to really, really pinpoint all of the actual dates and addresses, but I'm sense. going with what's in the biography, and yeah. I guess we'll just have to trust her. 
At this point in 1920, her store included not just a women's clothing department, but a shoe store, a lingerie department, a cosmetic counter, a jewelry store, and a beauty shop. Wow. She was a woman with a plan. That's that's a female-centric department store if I've ever heard one. Well, women were spending the money, much like they still are for families. And she had a real eye for what the market wanted. And she would describe her, I guess now, department store as, quote, a little piece of Fifth Avenue. And for those of you who might not know, Fifth Avenue is a very famous street for shopping in New York City. But it's she's where... not related to the Saks Fifth Avenue Saks. No, no. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think Saks Fifth Ave was there yet, but Bergdorf Goodman was. Mm. Um, and sort of, it's that area just south of Central Park. There's an Apple store over there now. <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. Yeah, it's the clear cube one. Mm. It's where I, it's 24 hours, so it tends to be where I have to go in the middle of the night to buy a new computer when mine explodes. <laughs> yes, anyway. Back to Pennsylvania. She also, at this point, opened an additional store in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And then starting in 1925, Mary began taking a trip that all of my friends who work in fashion take. She would first go to Europe annually to see the latest fashion trends, which now happen seasonally. But Mm -hmm. at the time, it was annually. And she would visit New York weekly to visit clothing manufacturers. And that is still a thing, although there are relatively few people manufacturing in the garment district anymore. I was going to say, sadly. There are still some, though. Which is great. I wish there were more. Yeah, it's, it's cool. And the businesses related to that are still there. So, like, there's a store where you go to get your underwires. Um <laughs> There's, like, there's a specialty store for basically everything in Which I love, lower, or in uh, like the 36th Street area. Yeah, it's very cool. By the 1950s, and this is jumping just a little bit ahead, but I like this to go along with a little piece of Fifth Avenue. A U.S. senator named Edward Martin would describe her as, quote, the merchant princess, which I think is very cool. It is very cool. It seemed to be a compliment, not mocking. Um, Like a recognition of what she built from having literally nothing. Which is really impressive. It's very impressive, yeah. But 
even with her initial success, there would be hardship to overcome. On the evening of February 12th, 1931, a fire began in the beauty shop of her original Harrisburg store. And according to her biography, the fire caused $300,000 in damage, injured 12 firefighters, and destroyed the homes of 13 people who occupied apartments in the building. Oh. She must have had some amazing financial wizardry skills because she collected only... I think $53,000 in insurance, but according to a local paper, she built a $250,000 store to rise from the ashes. Nice. Um, I'm not sure if that is literal or if it was maybe talking about how the building looked. Maybe she's it, magical. It could be maybe literal. The- well, I mean, and also... I mean, it might be that the firms that she was working with clearly saw that she was a solid investment. Right. And that they would eventually get paid. I don't know. I could see that a lot, especially because the Jewish community is so close-knit. They take care of each other. You know, it's not unlike, like, the Amish community. You know what I mean? Mm, This this was well beyond that at, at this point. Or at least... I'm not sure if the architects, they were local, and I'm not sure if they were also part of the Jewish community. But in the wake of the fire, she hired architects Lori and Green to design the facade of the new building. And then she hired Eleanor Lemaire as the store's interior architect after seeing her work on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And Eleanor Lemaire is a fascinating woman in her own right, and she's going on the list of people to look further into. And her papers have been preserved, which is kind of cool. That is very cool. Yep. So Mary didn't roll the dice on this building, she rebuilt in a much less fire-friendly stone and steel. Her new building was also fully air-conditioned. Ooh. She's fancy. In 1932. Wow. I have no idea how that worked. But it is so smart because then you're going to spend longer there. Oh, yeah. You're going to choose to go there to get things because of your condition. Exactly. Well, there are many reasons that you, as a woman about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, would choose to go there. Right. Um, But I'm saying that's an extra bonus. Oh, yeah. For anybody that was on the fence or even that wouldn't normally travel far to go to someplace would maybe travel a little further. Well, Mary kept adding amenities. Because she knew that personalized face-to-face service was the thing that set her above and apart. Mm-hmm. She wasn't really one to do anything by half, as you may have noticed. <laughs> and her new store 
When it opened on March 26th of 1932, in her triumphant return, that new store boasted 21 departments. Wow. Then, and this is where the more reasons why a lady about Harrisburg might go to here. Um, six years later, she expanded again to include a nursery, which is fucking so brilliant. Smart. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, have you ever been in Saks Fifth Ave? No. Not the original, no. So there are women's lounges. Like, it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you can still have the very old school New York experience. Like, I had a hell of a bra fitting there once. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the amenities like that, there's still, like, signage from that era of so things. So great. Yeah, so there was a... She was brilliant, especially for being a single woman. <laughs> like, Yeah, and she is still a single woman. She never married. Um, so she, like I said, expanded to include a nursery, a children's shoe shop, and a slipper shop, and then two trousseau rooms, which I find to be fascinating because a trousseau is not necessarily something done anymore but oh i love the idea of it it's problematic in like 37 different ways but also personalized new monogrammed everything when i go off and get married yes fucking please (laughs) i am ready to start my life give me my trousseau yes i guess that's what a bridal showers for these days i had a bridal shower in a book publishing conference room so (laughs) yeah very spur of the moment because my boss was decided that if nobody was gonna throw me one which i that just wasn't in my plans i had other things going on um and I was a grown-up when I got married, so I kind of didn't need a microwave. Um, <laughs> but she was like, no, no. I will grandmother you about this. Mm-hmm. And so I had my own personal bridal shower that was overseen by a single Jewish woman, actually. Oh. Yeah. All comes back around. It does. (laughs) Anyway, not about me, even though I like to talk about me. (laughs) We'll go back to talking about Mary. So in addition to the two trousseau rooms and in sort of a preview to what we're going to be talking about on our Patreon episode, she also added a fitting and alteration room and a shop for nurse and maid uniforms. And there were also over a dozen consulting rooms for individual futzing, 
which wow. is kind of cool. That is. Everybody and, likes to feel special and pampered. You know? Yeah. And one cool thing about the in-house fitting and alterations room was once a year, she invited her customers to bring in clothing purchased from anywhere for freshening. So to be repaired and to be tailored and to be just spiffed up. And they, so the store did it at a loss. But it gained them, like, because they were personally doing it in-house right. with their personal seamstresses, they were creating this relationship with those customers who would then see the quality mm-hmm. and the personal interest taken in them. That's some, like, and they would... on 34 stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Um, that's Macy's, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. That Macy's is also quite an adventure. Uh, in a in a way more over the top way than a Macy's <laughs> anywhere be. else is. Actually, I don't know. I think the pandemic might have taken that Macy's though. Like the Macy's Macy's. I don't hmm. No, I don't think so cuz I think the parade still well, Macy's still exists, but the flagship then, store might not. But I think doesn't it doesn't include doesn't it go past the flagship store? Oh yeah, there's an entire I think that's area the, that is Macy's. Right, I think there's uh, the area that the um, it's like very the, Art Deco with all the big windows where all the Christmas stuff happens. And, right, I think all the like the Broadway shows that do performances for the parade stop and do it in front of the entranceway for the flagship store yeah there's a an open area i could be there that would make sense um i don't know i do not watch the parade since i live here (laughs) someday we will Um, watch it live no (laughs) absolutely not (laughs) no anyway I don't actually know if the flagship store has died, so nobody panic and email me. It's probably still there. I feel like it ought to still be there. It would surprise me if they closed that one. Uh, Unrelated to Macy's. Let's get back (laughs) to Mary Sachs' department store because I just want to ramble. So, she continued to cultivate that personal, high-quality, and high-end atmosphere. And even though she was not designing herself, she was extremely particular about the quality and worksmanship, work, the workmanship, there we go, that went into anything she sold and if it wasn't up to her standards it didn't come in it just didn't and she was very much of the mind that if you couldn't own and wear something for three years then you've bought the wrong thing so it was fashion not trend nice and 
yeah, there there were a lot of interesting advertisements that she took out, like when short skirts happened and things like that. Um, the oh, gosh, I wish I could hold on. I need to find this quote because it's so good. Well, and there's definitely a certain amount of creativity and design aesthetic that goes into curating a store like that. Oh, absolutely. Even though she wasn't a designer per se, um, she clearly had an eye for design. Yeah. Oh, the actual direct quote um, about how much, or about being able to keep something is if you can't wear a coat for four or five years, it was the wrong coat the day you bought it. Likewise with a suit, likewise with a dress. So that is the direct quote there. Um, Which is a philosophy I can totally get behind. Yep, and in response to short skirts coming on the market, she wrote something that I think is interesting because it's less judgy than I would expect someone who very clearly did not, wasn't interested in trendy anything. Mm-hmm. She was interested in classic fashion. Yeah. Um, she wrote, don't be swayed by up to the minute if it isn't up to your standards. And, you know, the up being a play on the short skirt. Yes. Um, yeah so I thought that was that was interesting um and I guess she actually did the refreshing two or three times a year which is a lot so I guess seasonally which is very cool um something like that would absolutely make me a customer for life yeah right So, by the 1950s, if you were shopping at Mary Sachs in Harrisburg, you could expect to be met by a doorman, and there was valet parking. And I just, I feel like if people haven't, if you haven't experienced the weirdness that is old school New York City department stores... (laughs) I highly recommend walking into one, but be prepared to be judged by the person who will hold the door for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, a lot. Um, But there are still uniformed people who hold the door and are wearing white gloves. It's a very weird time travel-y sort of thing. Um, I can imagine. And that's what I'm picturing here. So combined, her Harrisburg and Lancaster stores employed a total of 175 employees by 1954. Wow. Again, single woman entrepreneur. Bad ass. Yep. And the Harrisburg store would further expand its offerings to include a home goods section, a paper shop, and a candy shop. 
And a few doors down, Mary would also operate the 212 Men's Shop. I wonder if 212 is a reference to the area code of Manhattan. Oh. Maybe not. It might actually just be the literal address, since <laughs> 210 is the other address. I don't know. I think that there weren't area codes at this point. Oh, that's true. They didn't even have numbers, wasn't it? Like No, exchanges. Yeah, like I think. weirdness. Like, I I am in awe. I am in awe of all of those operators with the plugs oh. and the things. and The, cor- uh. the requirements... Like, the job listing requirements for telephone operators mm-hmm. are amazing. And at some point, I'm just going to find an excuse to read them all. Because they are height and demeanor and nerves and, like, all of the things. But, anyway. Mm-hmm. Once again, back to Mary. Eventually, the Harrisburg store, the original location would span an entire city block. Wow. Yeah. That's extremely impressive. Right? Yeah, I just, that blows my mind. And unfortunately, Mary Sachs died of cancer on May 22nd, 1960, at the age of 72. She was still running everything until her death. How has, how how have we not, how have there not been like movies and books and I. Oh, did I mention they hand delivered everything? Oh my goodness. (laughs) And also if you were housebound would bring selections picked out specifically for you to you to try out in your home. With a personal shopper. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so she did have, like I said, way at the beginning, sisters. And one of whom quit school at uh, 15 to become a delivery person for her store. And I believe this was Hannah, um, Hannah Sachs Cantor, who would become president of the business and her sister, Yetta Sachs Carpenter, served as the secretary and treasurer and managed the Lancaster store. And Yetta had been managing the Lancaster store since 1927. That's amazing. So, yeah, so it is a family business owned and run by... One woman entrepreneur who opened a store in 1918 at one of the worst possible times to open a store. And that store went strong and even expanded in the 1950s post-World War II. And, I mean, a lot of things were expanding then, but it does not seem to me that the shortages that happened during the war, like, supply-wise, mm-hmm. um, it did not seem to lessen the loyalty of her customers. 
And I will talk about how her store and uniforms are related um, in our Patreon episode. But it's really fascinating to see how flexible she was and how much she paid attention to the needs of women at the time. And she didn't try to bend them to her vision. She built her vision around taking care of their needs, which worked for her. Because and nobody else gave a shit. Right? I mean, that was and, a time period where women were not catered to. It was, it's the husband, is, is the husband of the house home. Not, right. You know. It wouldn't be until... I think mid-50s, early 60s, when suddenly it would occur to advertising agencies on Madison Avenue. Also, very nearby. Mm-hmm. Fifth Ave, which is kind of funny. Um, that it would occur to them that women were actually the people making financial decisions on a day-to-day basis in the household. Which is also a whole interesting rabbit hole we won't go down. The impact that she must have had, though. Huge. On on how, not just locally, but on how things were done in New York. Because you know, you know people were watching her and and picking up how she was successful and what she did. And and implementing some of that stuff. I mean, her way of doing business wasn't happening on fifth ave before she was doing it and she would then bring in names recognizable from fifth ave to design her store and the interior and make everything as luxurious but also accessible to the, I mean, I assume that middle class and above right. are were... probably the people who could go there. But she was competing at that point not against other department stores and not even against the Fifth Ave stores. She was competing against literal dressmakers because... Mm-hmm. It's at a time when it could have gone either way. You might have gotten your clothes made to measure, and you might have gotten your clothes off the rack and tailored. Mm -hmm. But it was one of the two. And so it's, it's really interesting. And I would feel bad about the business being taken from the actual dressmakers except that that is where the industry was headed and there was no getting around it so it was already that i'm sure she probably worked with some you know what i mean or probably even employed some at some point or or, i mean she she had in-house tailoring right yeah like i can't imagine anything i can't imagine a vindictive bone you know what i mean like she was not she was a serious businesswoman. She was a serious businesswoman. And she, she did not fair. take shit. Right. 
Um, and but she was known to be exacting mm-hmm. um, if you were an employee. But she does not seem to have been mean. Right. She seems to have been particular. Take no shit, but do no harm. Yeah, basically. And to wrap up this little story, weeks after the Harrisburg store, the original, celebrated its 50th anniversary in 1968, the business was sold to a chain Mm. because her sister wanted to retire. Yeah. Um... And it was sold to a local Pennsylvania chain department store um, called Hess's Department Store, which ran the store uh, with Mary Sachs' name. It was renamed Hess's Mary Sachs. So it okay. it maintained her legacy, um, and they ran the store until it closed on September 2nd of 1978. And again, so, that shows how much people respected her. Yeah. And, I mean, the the building is there. The awning is there. And, I mean, she built that building. It was custom. Her name is in the stone. That's... And, yeah. Yeah. She just seems like a fascinating lady. And that is one hell of a rabbit hole that I went down because my best friend liked a cape that some girl was wearing at a party after a concert. But that's the exact rabbit hole to go down. I mean, like, that's the exact chain of events that make for a good rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. And I just started Googling, and then I couldn't find anything, and I had to wait until this afternoon and cross my fingers that this biography was going to arrive before we recorded, because (laughs) that was where the research was and it's a short biography but yeah it is like wow why don't we know about her or maybe maybe people in fashion do know about her and i just i was briefly in fashion but but there should be more yeah i feel like in 2020 we should create like a coloring book or booklet of sorts of the women that we cover. You mean 2022? Isn't that Not 2020? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like I said, 2022. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. Mm, that's a lot of. Actually, no, there are good pictures of her. Um, she does not. She looks exactly how you would expect her to look. But also way more specifically old lady frumpy than you would expect her to look. Um, But she, like, her name was synonymous with elegance in her time. And she's obviously well-dressed and well-tailored, like the images of her. Right. But she's got, like, these little tiny glasses. And it's the glasses. It's entirely the glasses that are giving me the vibes but anyway i just i think she's really fascinating and she seemed to be quite a character i that was such a good story i am fascinated now i want to know more about her 
well, I, she I have good news. <laughs> There's a biography. <laughs> I will be reading that biography because I am I'm hooked. I am hooked now. Yeah. And there is, I mean, she was up to so much. Like, there are many things in Pennsylvania named after her. But Good. that's sort of the the wrap it up in a bow, sort of bite-sized, even though I've been talking for an hour, version <laughs> of her. It certainly does not feel like that. That was such yep. a good story. Thank you. And her reputation was specifically as an honest saleswoman. Um, and if she did not, if someone tried to buy something and she didn't think that it either was the right fit or <laughs> quality or style, she would tell them. And that's why she got fired from her. <laughs> that is exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't ask why. Mary if you look fat in the pants. <laughs> She's yep. tell you. Um, and, and that description of Mary came directly from her sister, Hannah. So, uh, yeah. Thank you for covering her and for introducing. That is so delightful and far more delightful than mine. <laughs> yeah. Buckle in, friends. Yeah. It's, we're going to go for one of those just bumpy rides. Bumpy bump. We're going to take a U-turn. We are. We are. In progressive history. Yeah. It's, ugh. It's, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> uh-huh. It's been, Why don't you tell me a story? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you one that's going to make you want to scream. So it's been almost 51 years since Coco Chanel allegedly said to her maid, Celine, you see, this is how you die. Then laid down on her bed in the Hotel Ritz and did precisely that. She was 87 at the time. And (laughs) even even if you know nothing of fashion, I'm willing to bet that you know of her. Oh, like, of her name. Yeah. Coco was an incredibly brown-making woman, groundbreaking woman. And at first glance, she seems to be, like, the ultimate rags-to-riches story. But she was also a proven fan of the Nazis and pretty much a Nazi agent. Boo. Which automatically makes her a shit human being in my eyes. Uh-huh. So as with most things in life, uh, especially when it comes to people with money and power, there are many sides and variations to the stories. Coco herself had changed up stories. Mm. And her life is definitely not an exception to that. Uh, Many discrepancies occur across many reputable sources. So I'm going to do my best to cover her life as accurately as I can. Um... So let's just get into her. Uh, Gabrielle Bonaire Chanel was born. Yep. It was born August 19th, 1883 to Jean DeVol Chanel. Also just plain known as Jean, a laundry woman in the charity hospital run by the Sisters of Providence, which was a poorhouse in Samour. Oh, which is in France. Uh, according to Coco Chanel, a biography by Axel 
Madsen, published in 2009, her name was entered into the official registry incorrectly as Chasnel, C-H-S-N-E-L, most likely due to a clerical error. It was. Uh, I have found so many of those recently. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it also says that she went to her grave as Gabrielle Chasnell because to legally correct the misspelled name on her birth certificate would reveal that she was born in a poorhouse hospice. The fact that she came from, like, well, nothing is pretty much well known, though. And, I mean, her... Yeah, but known. specifics of well, of nothing is... Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's embarrassing, but I can see if you were snobby, you might. Right. Um, but her, her tombstone is correctly spelled. Um, her childhood is, I mean, it's, it's a clear look at where a lot of her motivations came from and why she did some of the things she did, no matter mm-hmm. which variation you, you look at. So, um... It was a year after she was born, and she was the second child, that her father would finally marry her mother. Uh, they would have... Not a priority, s- if you're in a poorhouse. Right. Um, and he was like a peddler. Um, they would have six children together, and they all lived in a one-room lodging. Until the age of 11. Well, Coco's age of 11. When mm-hmm. her mother passed away at the age of 32. Now, none of the children had any kind of schooling up to that point, and there are variants of the how and the why the children were split up. But after her mother's death, uh, Gabrielle's father sent the girls to the covenant or the convent of Aubazine, which ran an orphanage, and the religious order that was connected to it was the Congregation of the Sacred Heart of Mary. And it was, quote, founded to care for the poor and rejected, including running homes for abandoned and orphaned girls. It was also um, very stark, very frugal, very demanding, very strictly disciplined. Hmm. Um, She remained there until she turned 18. Then she went to live uh, at a boarding house for Catholic girls in the town of Moline. Chanel herself rewrote her childhood several times over with much more glamorous details that ranged from why her father abandoned her. One story uh, she told was he sailed to America to seek his fortune and left her with her aunts. To I mean, alleg- many people did. <laughs> right. Um, to alleging that she was actually born in 1893, like just shaving a decade off. Um, and it's not hard to understand oh. why she would do this. Uh Regardless, it was at that orphanage that uh, the woman now known as Coco learned to sew. And that skill would change her life. Uh, After she left the um, orphanage, she found work as a seamstress. But she always wanted to have her own real glamorous life. So she sang in a cabaret frequented by cavalry officers. And the stage is where she truly came became known as coco but again there's several variations as to where that coco comes from one was that her father called her that the other was because she liked to sing a song called who is coco and lastly the that it was an allusion to the french word cocotte which means uh kept woman 
which will make sense later on. Uh, try as she may, though, she was never a star. Um, she was just kind of mediocre in the singing department and the dancing. In fact, she was the only person. It happens. Yeah. She was the uh, she was only the person that would entertain in between the actual stars to keep the audience engaged. Her wages, she was the MC, pretty much. Uh, her her wages would were only what she was able to earn from a hat that was passed around. Hmm. Uh, it is also where another as like aspect of her was born. Coco was not what people of the times would consider a naturally beautiful woman. And her physique was looked at as being very boyish. Uh, Despite that, though, she learned how to work her charm and her youth to her advantage and began to captivate the military visitors. Her drive to become a star led her to move to Vichy, which was a known spa resort town in 1906. And Vichy had numerous concert halls, theaters, and cafes that she was hoping would, like, launch her career. Spoiler alert, it did not. Hmm. Coco would end up having to work at the Grand Grill, dispensing glasses of the allegedly um, curative mineral water that made Vichy renowned. Uh, Hmm. So she was like a water girl. Uh, When the resort season ended, she returned to Moulins defeated and pretty much accepted that cabaret maybe just was not for her. And I have to believe that there came a day, though, where she was happy that it didn't work out because that move back sparked the chain of events that would change her life and lead her to have a much bigger legacy than being a famous cabaret gal like ever could have. Hmm. So at the age of 23, Coco met young French ex-cavalry officer and textile heir Etienne Balsan. Oh, like you do. Right. And she would live with him for the next three years. Now, this is where things get a little spicy. Um, For those of you listening that may have watched the original Gossip Girl this guy was pretty much the OG Chuck Bass. Like, I can't think of another thing to equate him to. His chateau was huge and opulent, and he kept several courtesans. Uh, his new favorite being Coco. She actually, ironically, bumped a cabaret singer uh, down the chain. <laughs> he had very high society friends that were constantly visiting and, well, partying there. And it was a lifestyle of extreme self-indulgence. Uh, Balsan's wealth allowed the cultivation of a social set that reveled in partying and the gratification of human appetites with all the implied accompanying decadence. Yeah. So it is said that several courtesans actually, courtesans actually lived on the estate. Um... There's talks of polyamory. It's. Well. Yeah, it's it's spicy. Uh, Hmm. So he showered her with all the baubles of rich life. She got diamonds and dresses and pearls. Uh, Biographer Justine Picardi in her 2010 study, Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life, 
suggests that Coco's nephew, Andre Plas, was supposedly the only child of her sister, Julia Barth, who had committed suicide. But Justine thinks that it was Chanel's own child with Basson. Hmm. And Andre did go on to inherit her entire estate along with his two own daughters. So totally believable. Interesting. Yes. Uh, so while staying at the Chateau, this new luxury life left Coco with a lot of downtime. Time that she spent using those sewing skills that she learned at the orphanage. You see, Coco realized that the current fashions of the day were both just uncomfortable and just did not work for her figure. She didn't no. want <laughs> she didn't want to sit side saddle while riding horses through the estate, and she really did like to ride. So she literally altered one of Balsan's riding outfits, pants, shirt, and tie to fit her. She then decided the hats of the time were just too big and heavy, and she made herself a straw sun hat with the ribbon tied around it. Another mm. another one of my favorites during her time was she took one of Balsan's sweaters, cut it down the front, and added buttons, creating a cardigan. Huh. So she soon worked her her magic in such a way that she was mysterious. She didn't care what other people thought in terms of, you know, how she dressed and that she was bucking the system. She did, however, manage to use that, that mysteriousness so that everybody started wanting what she was wearing. In 19... 19- I can see that, sure. Right? Especially if you're like, dude, I don't want to wear a corset. I want that. That shit looks comfortable. Um, and it does. Right. Frankly. So in 1908, she began seeing one of Balsan's friends, Captain Arthur Edward Boy Capel. Oh, wow. Now, Coco would go on to refer to that time of her life as when two... This is quotes. When two gentlemen were outbidding each other for my hot little body. And <laughs> honestly, get it, Coco. Fair enough. <laughs> right. Get it. Uh, and he was old. Capel uh, was a wealthy member of the English upper class and a rather famous polo player. Hmm. He would give Coco one of his apartments in Paris and set her up with her own shop based on how widely popular her little son's, like, straw sun hat became. Uh, she became a licensed milliner in 1910 and opened a boutique at 21 Rue Cambon, Paris, named Chanel Modes. Hmm. Well, she hoped uh, Capel and her would settle down and have a life together. Yeah, he just could not keep it in his pants. And he clearly had some family duty to marry wealthy. And yeah. no matter how much success she had or what chateau she was found in, she just wasn't that. Uh, their affair no. lasted nine years, including after he married English aristocrat Lady Diana Wyndham in ni- 1918. Mm. Keppel would die in a car accident on the 22nd of December 1919, 
25 years after the event, Chanel, who was at that time then residing in Switzerland, where she's actually buried, uh, confided to her friend Paul Morand, his death was a terrible blow to me. In losing Capel, I lost everything. What followed was not a life of happiness, I have to say. Hmm. Coco's hats took off in 1913. Uh, she opened a boutique in Deauville, financed by Capel, where she introduced deluxe casual clothing suitable for leisure and sport. Hmm. The fashions were constructed from humble fabrics like jersey and tricot, which at that time were primarily used for men's underwear. In fact, the first dress she constructed was from one of Capel's polo jerseys. Hmm. The location was a prime one in the center of the town on a fashionable street. Uh, here, Chanel sold hats, jackets, sweaters, and the manier, which was the striped sailor blouse that she became famous for. Oh, right. She did that. Yeah. Coco had the dedicated support of two family members, her sister Antoinette and her paternal aunt Adrian, who was of a similar age. Adrian and Antoinette would parade through the town on its boardwalks on a daily basis, modeling her designs. Oh, that's it, handy. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It brought people in. In 1915, she was determined to recreate the success that she was having in Deauville and opened an establishment in Baritz. It was close to wealthy Spanish clientele and also a playground for the wealthy that were exiled from their native countries by the war. This shop wasn't a, tra wasn't a traditional storefront, though. It was actually a villa opposite the casino there. By <laughs> 1916, just one year after operation, uh, it was so lucrative that she was able to completely reimburse Capel for his original investment. Wow. In 1918, Chanel purchased the building at 31 Rue Cambone, in one of the most fashionable districts of Paris. By 1919, Chanel was registered as a couturier and established her Maison de Couture in, there. In 1921, she opened an early incarnation of a fashion boutique featuring clothing, hats, and accessories, and later expanded to offer jewelry and fragrances. Hmm. So, she's breaking grounds. She's doing really great. Uh... Ooh, speaking of fragrances, Chanel Number no. Five was uh, created in 1921. It was the first perfume to be named after a designer. The scent formula for the fragrance was compounded by French Russian chemist and perfumer er Ernest Beau. The design hmm. of its bottle has been an important part of the product's allure, and it said that. The iconic bottle was designed based on Chappelle's favorite whiskey decanter. Oh, interesting. Why is it named number it five? It does look like a uh, whiskey decanter, actually. It really does. Uh, so why number five? Now, according to the New York Times death announcement on January 11th, 1971, she had been told by a fortune teller that five was her lucky number. Another story hmm. says that the paths that led her to the cathedral for daily prayers when she was at the orphanage were laid out in circular patterns repeating the number five. 
when presented with the small glass vials containing sample scents numbered 1 to 5 and 20 to 24, for her assessment, she chose the fifth vial. Coco told Ernest then, I present my dress collections on the 5th of May, the 5th month of the year, and so we will let this sample, sample number 5 keep the name it has already. It will bring good luck. And huh. that it did. It made her millions. In fact, the perfume made her far more than her clothing did. The fragrance was also backed by department store owner Theophile Bader and businessmen Pierre and Paul Wertheimer with Chanel developing a close friendship with Pierre. I use that term loosely because she <laughs> does him dirty. Uh, Coco mm. herself was the first face of the fragrance appearing in the advertisement published by Harper's Bazaar in 1937. Uh, in 1925, Chanel introduced the now legendary Chanel suits uh, with collarless jacket and well-fitting skirt, a la Jackie O. Um, her designs were revolutionary for the time, barring elements of menswear, emphasizing comfort over the constraints of then popular fashions. She really helped women say goodbye to the days of corsets and other confining garments. After uh Another 1920 revolutionary 1920s design was Chanel's little black dress. She took a color yes. once associated with mourning and showed just how chic it could be for evening wear. Like, up to this point, I'm pretty emphatically Team Coco. Like, she truly revolutionized fashion yeah. for women and said, she literally said, that's how men want us to dress. We should dress how we want to. Mm-hmm. But this is where I begin to want to just smack her. Um, yeah. yeah. So now it's where it just gets yucky. Uh, so in 1923, Vera Bate Lombardi, allegedly the illegitimate daughter of the Mar Marquess of Cambridge, offered Chanel entry into the highest levels of the British aristocracy. It was an elite group of associations revolving around such figures as politician Winston Churchill, aristocrats such as the Duke of Westminster, and royals such as oh, Edward... Marquess is just below Duke, right? Yeah. Hmm? Uh, I said Marquess is just below Duke, right? Yes. I believe so. Uh, in Monte Carlo in 1923, at the age of 40... She was introduced by Lombardi to the vastly wealthy Duke of Westminster, Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor, known to his intimates as Bendor. I don't want to know why. Uh, <laughs> the Duke lavished her with extravagant jewels, costly art, and a home in London's prestigious Mayfair district. His affair with Chanel lasted 10 years. The Duke was an outspoken anti-Semite. He intensified hmm. or maybe created her inherent um, antipathy towards Jews. He shared with her and expressed extreme homophobia. In 1946, hmm. uh, Chanel was quoted by her friend and confidant, again, Paul Moran, as saying homosexuals i've seen young women ruined by these awful queers 
drugs, divorce, scandal. They will use any means to destroy a competitor and to wreak vengeance on a woman. The queers want to be women, but they're lousy women. What? Me? Right? Using any means to destroy seems really fucking ironic now, let me tell you, Miss Chanel. I Uh, has confusion. And that friendship with Winston Churchill will prove to be one of the most important relationships of her life. Hmm. So, yeah, anti-Semitism and homophobia are pretty much just the worst. Uh, So the Chanel Couture was a lucrative business enterprise, to say the least. Um, It is said that she employed between 3,500 and 4,000 people, mostly women, by 1935. That count varies, but it's still a lot. As the 1930s progressed, though, her place on the throne of Haute Couture was threatened. The boyish look in the short skirts of the 1920s flapper kind of disappeared overnight. More Mm. significantly, though, she began to be eclipsed by her premier rival, the designer Elsa Schiaparelli. Schiaparelli's innovative designs were... So Chanel's known for being very classic, very basic, very... Yeah, just very no frills. Right. Schiaparelli was really into like playful references to surrealism um and that was garnering critical acclaim and generating enthusiasm in the fashion world so feeling that she was losing her avant-garde edge chanel collaborated with jean coteau on his theater piece edipi rex the costumes that she designed though were mocked and critically, like, just blasted. And I, I quote... That is a complicated play to... Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, and I quote, Wrapped in bandages, the actors look like am- ambulant mon- mummies or victims of some terrible accident. She was wow. also involved in Whoops. the costuming of Bacchanal, a Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo production. The designs were actually made by Salvador Dali. However, due to the declaration of war by Great Britain on September 3rd, 1939, the ballet was forced to leave London um, and they left the costumes in Europe and were remade according to Dali's initial designs by another designer, Karinska. That's... That's messy. Yeah. So in 1939, at the beginning of World War II, she closed her shops. Now, she said that it's not, it was not a time for fashion, which, you know, at face value would seem respectful. But, yeah. But that wasn't really her motive. According, no. no, according to her biographer, Halvon, he suggests that Chanel used the outbreak of the war as an opportunity to retaliate against those workers who had struck for higher wages and shorter work hours in the French general labor strike of 1936. Doesn't she know what happens when you make French laborers mad? Apparently not. She didn't give a shit. 
So closing her, her couture house, she pretty much made a definitive statement on her political, political views. Her mm. dislike of Jews, reportedly sharpened by her association with the society elites, had solidified her beliefs. She Gross. shared with many of her circle a conviction that Jews were a threat to Europe because of the Bolshevik government in Soviet Union. And all of it just really hurts to say. Um, during I the mean, ger- eh? But, yeah. eh? Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. I- I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> same page. So during the German occupation, Chanel resided at the Hotel Ritz. It was noteworthy as the preferred place of residence for upper echelon German military staff. During this time, she had a romantic liaison with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. That's an unfortunate name. Right. A German aristocrat and member of Dinklage noble family. He served as a (laughs) diplomat in Paris and was former Prussian army officer and attorney general who had been an operative in military intelligence since 1920, and he is the one who paid for and procured her arrangements at the Ritz. Oh, how nice. Right? Sleeping with the enemy, Coco Chanel and the Secret War, written by Halvon, further solidifies the the consistencies of the French intelligence documents released by describing Coco as a vicious anti-Semite who praised Hitler. Ew. Yeah. World War II, specifically the Nazi seizure of all Jewish-owned property and business enterprises, provided her with the opportunity to try to gain full monetary fortune generated by Parfums Chanel and its most profitable product, Chanel No. 5. Because she, at the time, I think, I want to say the original contract, she was only making 10% off the sales. Hmm. Uh and that was just for the use of her name, pretty much. Uh, so the directors of Perfume Chanel, which were the Wertheimers, were Jewish. And Chanel used her position as a Aryan to petition, oh. yeah, to petition German officials to legalize her claim to sole ownership. Ew. Oh, yeah. On May 5th, 1941, she wrote to the jur- to the government administrator charged with ruling on the disposition of Jewish financial assets. Her grounds for proprietary ownership were based on the claim that Parfume Chanel is still the property of Jews. There's air quotes around that. And had been legally abandoned by the owners. What? Mm-hmm. She wrote, but, I have... I have an indisputable right of priority. The profits that I have received from my creation since the foundation of this business are disproportionate. And you can help to repair in the part of the prejudices I have suffered in the course of these 17 years. So what her anti-Semitic ass was unaware of, though, Mm. was that the Wertheimers anticipated the forthcoming Nazi mandates against the Jews and back in May of 1940, legally turned control of Parfume Chanel over to Felix Amiot, who was a Christian French businessman and industrialist. (laughs) And at the war's end, he returned Parfume Chanel to the hand of the Wertheimers. 
because he is not an asshole, or at least not in that way. I don't know anything else about him. Just the fact that it was he fucked over Coco on this shit, just yes. Oh, that's just so gross. Oh, it gets gross. It gets worse. Unfortunately, though, this put them in it like the Wertheimers in a shitty position post-war because she would continue to battle for more profits. Now, exposing her... go away, Coco. Right. Exposing her Nazi activity would have allowed them to win the battle and, like, put this to bed. But it would also tarnish her name, and her name is what sold that perfume. Oh. As such, be prepared to get real mad. They would get completely screwed over on the New Deal that they struck. On May 17, 1947, Chanel received wartime profits from the sale of Chanel No. 5, an amount equivalent to, like, $9 million, I believe. Her future would be... Her future share would be 2% of all Chanel No. 5 sales worldwide. The financial benefit to her would be enormous. Her earnings were projected at $25 million a year, making her one of the richest women in the world at the time. In addition, they would pay all of Chanel's living expenses from the trivial to the large. What? For the rest of her life. What? No, why? Because she is a bitch. Man, what an asshole. Right? In his book, Vaughn establishes that Chanel committed herself to the German cause as early as 1941 and worked for General Walter Schellenberg, chief of the German intelligence agency. I'm going to butcher this and I apologize, but only a little bit because fuck the Nazis. Seek her heistinst, I think. Seek her heistinst? Sure. Uh, it's safety. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's safety. Um, oh, seek her heistinst. Yes. That, that, that them safety. fuckers. Uh, and the military. Or security. Nazis make me drop a lot of F-bombs. Uh, well, that's fine. <laughs> I'm and... only here to speak the German, <laughs> not praise the Nazis. And the military intelligence spy network, Abwer, 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 A-B-W-E-H-R. Abwer. Abwer. At the Reich Security or Main Abwer. Office Where? in Berlin. It's Abwer. Abwer. Oh. Nope. I need to see a written, but. <laughs> At the end of the war, Schellenberg was tried. Abwer. At the end of the war, Schellenberg... Sorry. Huh? <laughs> no, I'm done. Just... So Schellenberg was tried by the Nuremberg Military Tribunal and was sentenced to six years imprisonment for war crimes. Bye-bye. He was released in 1951 owing to an incurable liver disease and took refuge in Italy. Oh, fuck off. Chanel paid for Schellenberg's medical care and living expenses, financially supporting his wife and family, and paid for Schellenberg's fucking funeral upon his death in 1952. Wasn't somebody else paying for 
her expenses, meaning right. they were also paying for that. She literally pretty much made Jews pay for that. Man, what a fuckface. Seriously. In, the late, in late 2014, French intelligence agencies declassified and released documents confirming Coco Chanel's war, role with Germany in World War II. That's gross. Working as a spy, Chanel was directly involved in a plan for the Third Reich to take control of Madrid. Such documents identify Chanel as an agent in the German military intelligence, the Abwehr. 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 Yes. That one. Or Abwehr. Sorry. Chanel visited Madrid in 1943 to convince the British ambassador to Spain, Sir Samuel Orr, a friend of Winston Churchill, about a possible German surrender once the war was leaning towards an Allied victory. One of the most prominent missions she was involved in was Operation Model Hoot, Operation Model Hat. Her duty Model was... Hoot. That's right. Mein Hoot er hat dreiecken. Um, her duty was to act as a messenger from Hitler's foreign intelligence to Churchill to prove that some of the Third Reich attempted peace with the Allies. That's air quoting right there. Uh, 1943. Oh, did they? Chanel traveled to the RSHA in Berlin, otherwise known as the Lion Den, with her liaison and old friend, the German embassy in, pa- in Paris, press attaché, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. Um, apparently, Dinklage. He was, apparently he was also known as Sparrow among his friends and colleagues. I would not... I, I don't want to know. So Dinklage uh, was all... Upper class schoolboy nicknames yeah. are an entire thing. So Dinklage was also a collaborator for the German SD. Chanel and Dinklage were to report to Schellenberg at the RSHA with a plan that Chanel had proposed to Dinklage. She, Coco Chanel, was to meet Churchill and persuade him to negotiate with the Germans. Uh In late 1943 or early 1944, it's a little sketchy, uh, Chanel and her SS superior Schellenberg who had a weakness for unconventional schemes, devised a plan to get Britain to consider a separate peace to be negotiated by the SS. When interrogated by British intelligence at the war's end, Schellenberg maintained that Chanel was a person who knew Churchill sufficiently to undertake political negotiations with them. (laughs) Uh, For that mission, with the Operation Model Hat, they also recruited... Wait, Chanel... When did she become an expert in politics? She wasn't an expert in politics, but remember she made friends with Churchill? She's a bag of dicks. Yes, she is. And they also recruited Vera Bate Lombardi, who is the one, if you remember, that brought Chanel into the fold, so to speak. So Count Joseph... Count Joseph von Lederberg-Wichlen. I don't know. I would have to see the spelling. (laughs) I don't even... You know what? I honestly don't give a fuck if I'm pronouncing Nancy names wrong. I I don't. I Uh, mean, you are, but I don't know (laughs) what the name is. It's fine. Uh, A Nazi agent who defected to the British Secret Service... Okay, I guess he's all right. 
1944 recalled a meeting he had with Nick Dinklage in early 1943 in which the Baron had suggested including Lombardi as a courier. Dinklage purportedly said. So, unaware of their true hmm. intentions, Lombardi was actually led to believe that the forthcoming journey to Spain would be a business trip exploring the potential for establishing Chanel Couture in Madrid. Lombardi acted as an intermediary delivering a letter written by Chanel to Churchill to be forwarded to him by the British Embassy in Madrid. Schellenberg's SS liaison officer, Captain Walter Cushman, acted as bagman and was told to deliver a large sum of money to Chanel in Madrid. Ultimately, the mission was a failure for the Germans. British intelligence files reveal that the plan collapsed after Lombardi, on arrival in Madrid, proceeded to denounce Chanel and others to the <sighs> British embassy as Nazi spies. She was like, fuck no. Oops. Um, yeah, so good on her. Uh, in yeah. September of 1944, Chanel was interrogated by the Free French Purge Committee, the the Apparition. The committee had no documented evidence of her collaborative activities and was obliged to release her at that time. According to Chanel's grandniece, Gabrielle Place Lebruni, when Chanel returned home, she said, Churchill had me freed. The extent of Churchill's intervention for Chanel after the war became a subject of much gossip and speculation. Some historians claim that people worried that if Chanel were forced to testify about her own activities at trial, that she would expose the pro-Nazi sympathies and activities of certain top-level British officials, which were members of that elite society that she got involved with, and the royal family. Mm. Oh, well, but, the royal family does have some problematic... Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, problematic but, problems? Yeah. <laughs> Vaughn writes that some claim that Churchill instructed Duff Cooper, British ambassador to the French provisional government, to protect Chanel. Chanel's friend and biographer Marcel Heydrich said of her wartime interaction with the Nazi regime... It, if one took seriously the few disclosures that Mademoiselle Chanel allowed herself to make about those black years of the occupation, one's teeth would be set on edge. Huh. When Vaughn's book was published in August of 2011, his disclosure of the contents of recently disclassified uh, military intelligence documents generated considerable controversy about Chanel's activities. Maison de Chanel issued a statement, portions of which were published by several media outlets. Chanel corporate refuted the claim of espionage while acknowledging the company officials had read only media excerpts of the book. <laughs> the, <laughs> wow, plausible deniability. What? <laughs> right? The Chanel group stated, what is certain is that she had a relationship with a German aristocrat during the war. Clearly, it wasn't the best period to have a love story with a German, even if Baron von Dinklage was English by his mother and she, Chanel, knew him before the war. Baron von Dinklage. Yes. That's all. In an interview given to the Associated Press, author Vaughn discussed the unexpected turn of his research. I was looking for something else, and I came across this document saying Chanel's a Nazi agent. 
Then I really started hunting through all of the archives in the United States, in London, in Berlin, and in Rome. And I came across not one, but 20, 30, 40 absolutely solid archival materials on Chanel and her level, lover, Hans Gunther von Dinklage, who was a professional spy. Uh-oh. Vaughn also addressed the discomfort many felt with the revelations provided in his book. A lot of people in this world don't want the iconic figure of Gabrielle Coco Chanel, one of France's greatest cultural idols, destroyed. This is definitely something that a lot of people would have preferred to put aside to forget to just go on selling Chanel scarves and jewelry. But I, for one, cannot ignore it. I can't. No. So that is the disgusting (laughs) turn of events that make me sad. It just, it breaks my heart that somebody who did do a lot of good and... Uh, and I can understand, I can see the motives of so much of her her actions. Yeah. But it gets to a point where it's just unjustifiable. It is unjustifiable. Yeah. To even, even, even if nothing came forth about her being a Nazi spy, which there are plethora of documents. Yeah. How dirty she did the brothers that believed in her enough to back her perfume alone makes her a shit human being. Right? And you could save 50 babies from a burning building, but the second that you turn around and would have... Just millions of people killed. Just Ew. no. Like, no. I I would like to believe that I would have done whatever I could to stand up against the atrocities. I sure as fuck would not have been. And I get people have survival instincts, but this is more than survival. She had more than enough money to get her ass out of there. And there were other... There were other designers that fled Paris and I will cover that a little bit more in our Patreon episode um, that fled Paris before this happened that closed their shops and left Um, she she had options she had enough means and privilege to GTFO and not have to do those things agreed so she she knew what she was doing right and i hate that i loved her perfume and i hate that i loved her designs <laughs> like i hate any i do too because they're classic right and i mean it sometimes it sucks a lot when you learn about the people you think are interesting yeah it's that whole never meet your hero thing i guess so that is the uh disheartening truth of Coco Chanel. And it's hard because I do want to go back and read more about the before she turned into, well not turned into because clearly that was already there. It's so hard. It's so hard because there is good stuff there. But yeah, nothing, nothing can justify the, the shitty behavior. 
No. No. Ew. Right. Yeah. So, bringing it back to not Nazis. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. How do you not want to die this week? It's the weekly worst way to die. That is a good weekly one. worst um, way to die. Let's see. My weekly worst way to die would be. I'm trying not to go dark. <laughs> I'm trying not to take it dark. Um, <sighs> I mean, if you're... Whatever, get dark. It being turned over by somebody that I thought was a friend. Yeah. Like, I, I think that is the worst. Yeah. That's, that's my worst way. You know, it's kind of weird that Beauty Shop Fire is the light-hearted <laughs> version of this. Right. Oh, my goodness. Beauty School Fire. <laughs> no? I, I looked it back something, off. Something, something, go back to high school. <laughs> oh, and her name was Frenchie. Look da, at da, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's bad. Oh. Yeah. You know what? You, you do you want to be spooky internet friends for more horrible, horrible puns? <laughs> you can find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, eventually TikTok. I mean, we're like there. We just haven't done anything yet. I need to like, coerce my offspring into creating some things. But yeah. you can also just find us at bonesandbobbins.com. It's true. And we have to wrap it up because for reasons unclear, my spouse won't stop pacing in the kitchen. It happens. <laughs> it does. Although he just stopped doing that and walked by just now because <laughs> the last five minutes couldn't. Ugh. Anyway, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Even if you can hear my spouse pacing around in the background. Um, it pleases the internet gremlins. And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls. All of them. All of them. <laughs> and on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Also fuck Nazis. Yeah, definitely fuck Nazis. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts Follow us on Spotify or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.